What's going on, everybody? Thank you for joining me on another exciting episode of Data. My name is Brian, and I look forward to sharing with you another amazing guest today. But first, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please make sure you get out there and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. Now sit back and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Dad Up, everyone. I am excited for the guest I have on my show today. He is first a disciple, but he is also a devoted family man and my brother-in-law. He's originally from Missouri, and when he was four years old, his father suddenly passed away, leaving his mom to raise three kids on her own, which she did successfully. After college, he moved to California looking for an opportunity in business and found himself quickly working up the corporate ladder in the telecommunications industry. However, he was not satisfied with that level of success and was searching for something more. He made a life-changing decision to leave the company he'd worked so hard at and began working in a completely different industry as an independent agent with Transamerica. Now he is noticed as one of the great leaders of the organization and has offices all over the country and a team of agents that is second to none. It is an absolute thrill to have Christopher Schleyman on Dad Up. Welcome to the show, my brother. <laughs> that is very kind of you, Brian. Thanks so much. Clearly, uh, clearly my wife, Michelle, did not write that intro. I think she would have edited it a little bit differently. Um, longtime fan of the show. First time on a podcast ever. So excited to be on with you today. And I, and I do want to amend one thing. You mentioned that my mother raised three kids successfully. I, we're sure one of the three turned out that way. I'm not sure about the other two, so that's still up for debate. But <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I was fortunate enough to know her, and uh, she was a wonderful, wonderful lady, and um, she did a great job. So she was a dad. She was, uh, she was mom and dad. She played right. roles. Right, yeah. right. Well, awesome. For my listeners who may not know who you are, kind of kind of give me a little bit more background about yourself, um, kind of about your history, and then also about your kids. Obviously, you have three kids. I know that, but a little bit about your family. I grew up in St. Louis. I started working at a very early age. I mean, shoveling driveways and, and cutting lawns during summers. Uh, at 13, I got my first, like, real, you know, W-2-type job where you're clocking in. I think it's probably the only lie my mother ever told was, uh, she lied about my age so that I could get a worker's permit. <laughs> yeah, and uh, somehow I got the principal of my school to sign off so that I was able to get a job working at the same country club that she was working at. So, um, that, that, you know, I think that was always sort of my go-to. I was never the smartest. I was never, for, for sure, the best looking or the most talented guy out there. And I, and I struggled a lot a bit uh, in high school and even early in college with self-confidence. I think. I think part of that was, you know, just being raised without a dad, like uh, not having um, a dad daily in my life to sort of toughen me up a little bit and sort of teach me how to be a man. Um, I, I had a big brother through the Big Brothers organization that was very involved in my life, and he was terrific and still a great friend and mentor to me today. But just not having a dad there day to day. So um, the one thing I could always sort of count on about myself was, um, was my work ethic. And so I moved out here in my mid-20s to California. And um, a few years later, met my wife, fell in love. We've been married a little bit over 22 years. And we've got three kids. Uh, our oldest, Alex, is 19. He's going. He's a freshman at Ottawa University in Arizona. And my daughter, Alexis, is a senior in high school at Ontario Christian. And our youngest son, Jack, is 14, and he's a freshman at Ontario Christian. So... That's where we are, and we're all working from home now, it seems like. Right, right. Yeah. 
So all the uh, obviously uh, Alex is back in school. Um, Correct. You have the two two younger ones at home, and um, you working kind of independently as an in, kind of an independent contractor, right? I mean, you're how how did you you know kind of growing up in a in a culture or in an environment that really promoted the corporate world, working in the corporate world? What what really gave you the drive to make that switch from corporate to kind of working on for yourself? Uh, you know, I guess, uh, part of it is, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe a little bit of a, uh, Pollyannish view of the world, a little bit of having my head in the clouds at times. I think one of the things that my mother did do, and she may have done it with my brother and sister as well. I don't know, but like she, um, she really affirmed me in, in whatever way that she did, she convinced me that I was special, you know, and, and um, that I was going to do something special with my life, that sort of stuff. And even though it never showed itself in any way, shape, or form athletically in sports, and it really didn't manifest academically at all, there was inside of me, I think, a desire to sort of, you know, do something maybe a little bit more significant or a little bit bigger with my life. And I, I loved working in a corporate environment. I was a great employee. I worked hard. And, and, and but, um, when I was introduced to an opportunity to sort of work outside of that framework, if you will, and do something independent, um, you know, I was, I was optimistic about the possibility. I got a chance to start part-time. So I felt like there was nothing to lose. There was very little risk involved. And um, the more that I worked part-time at that career, the more I found I enjoyed it. I was pretty good at it. And then, you know, when the time was right, I made the transition. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I've witnessed you just knowing you, obviously, for all these years. I've witnessed you kind of evolve and grow, and um, it's been, I mean, you've done great. You've, you've certainly uh, been an inspiration to me, and, and so I appreciate it. I appreciate all that you're doing. I appreciate you. I couldn't have done it without you and my wife and the whole family supporting me, quite frankly. Now, as a young child, kind of touch on, on you as a young child, when, when your father passed away, do you did you ever growing up feel the need or the responsibility of taking care of your brothers and sister, your brother and sister, or did your mom ever put that weight on you or any of your siblings for that matter? Yeah. I, well, I think that's, uh, I mean, in my opinion, I think that's sort of the oldest child syndrome. There's always sort of a, a sense of responsibility of looking out for your younger brother and sister and a sense of um, sort of setting an example for them. And so, yeah, I think, to a great degree, I felt that whether, I don't know that my mother necessarily put that pressure on me, but I certainly felt, felt a responsibility to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, at times I did that okay, and at times I completely dropped the ball. I'm pretty confident of that. Um, yeah, it's something that I had to, I mean, my my parents, you know, I didn't have the circumstance where, where I had a parent pass away, but my parents worked so much that I had, I kind of carried that weight of trying to take care of my sister right there was there was many times that in the evening times where I was making dinner for us because my parents were still working so um, it's added pressure and added weight that that a child shouldn't have to go through but you know when you're a child you don't really you're not really thinking about it at that point you're just kind of doing it yeah and it's I I, and I think oftentimes people are capable of a lot more than we understand and realize when you're put in those situations even as a child oftentimes kids step up I think Sometimes, yep. you know, now that we're trying to sort of change what's going on generationally, you know, I think sometimes maybe we baby our kids high enough standards don't expect enough out of them. I think that's sort of a, a balance, a balancing game that we sort of run into. Uh, 
as we're trying to raise our kids the right way, trying to give them everything that we didn't have. And yet, on the other hand, trying to set the standards and the expectations and pour the beliefs into them and build the self-confidence. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a line that's not well defined that you're constantly trying to find balance on. I would agree with that. Now, kind of touching, kind of segueing into your dad role, how would you describe your parenting style? <laughs> Introductory. I'm learning as I go. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I think, I think I'd describe it probably as firm but flexible. You know, I'm a big believer that rigid things break and flexible things bend when they need to. You know, I, I think as our kids were getting older, I think we always felt like once they're old enough to be able to carry a dish from the table to the countertop, then that should be their responsibility. Like as they get older and they can do things, then they should be expected to do those things, to take on those responsibilities. Because one of the things we're trying to do is raise them to be independent adults for me that you know the finish line for them was always they have a, a strong sense of faith a strong relationship with their lord and then in addition to that they have a strong sense of self-esteem self-confidence and, and self-worth and you know part of that is just giving kids more and more responsibility and but i think before you can hold them accountable to doing certain things you need to what i call make them accountable and what i mean by that mm-hmm. is you need to show them how to do it, teach them how to do it. You need to observe them doing it. You need to give them feedback until you're confident that they can handle that responsibility. And then at that time, you sort of hold them accountable for it. That's a great point. And parenting style, our parenting styles would change too from child to child. Every child responds to things differently, um, whether it's instruction, discipline, a praise, it doesn't matter. All of our children respond to things differently. And so you have to, you have to, kind of adapt and, and adjust on the fly, right? You got to pivot when you need to. So that's good. For sure. Yeah, my, my, my big brother through the big brother organization, I remember when he was talking about him being in management, I was just a young kid at the time. He said something to me. He said, he said you've got to treat all of your employees fairly, but not necessarily equally. He said, because mm. when you just treat them equally across the board, sometimes that's the least fair thing that you could do. And he gave me several examples at the time. It just sort of stuck with me. And I think when you talk about raising your kids maybe a little bit differently, we've always tried to be fair with all three of them, but using the same standards for each one of them in some areas isn't necessarily fair because one is gifted in one area and another is gifted in another area and another is, you know, I've got a weakness here, that's not a natural giftedness. And so you, you certainly need to be fair with each of them and, and raise them, you know, to the best that you can individually. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, where all three of your kids are so different, how do you encourage each child differently to achieve? So there was a, there was a, a, book, a book written a number of years ago by these statisticians, I guess you would call them, called Freakonomics. It was like a New York Times bestseller. That was probably 15, 20, 25 years ago. And I remember reading it, and there's only one thing I really remember from the book that was fascinating. It was these two statisticians who were talking about really diving into the stats on things and analyzing things. And the one thing that I remember them talking about was so many parents when they're raising kids read to their children. And they went into all this research and they actually said what what caused children to be more interested in reader and grow up to become readers, what's most, most likely to cause that is parents that personally own a lot of books, not necessarily parents that read to their children. And I just found that fascinating, especially yeah. as we dove into all the stats. And so for me, I think about each one of our children and how individual they are. In success. I, I think first and foremost, 
it's got to be an example that you're setting. Like you've got to be pushing yourself to get better, to try new things, to do new things, to set high standards personally. I, I think one of the things that's a little bit frustrating to me, I see oftentimes in parents is where they're trying to set unrealistic expectations of their children. And yet they're not living up to those same standards or expectations as adults. Exactly. And to me, I want to be, I want to be held to a higher standard by my children than I'm holding them to. I'm the leader in the household, so I should be held to a higher standard. So I think a big part of it is setting the example of what it looks like for me. And then, once again, like I said, helping them to build their self-esteem, their self-confidence, and their self-worth, where they've got the confidence to try new things and work through the early difficult stages of not being good at something and, mm. and to help them understand their I mean, each one of them at a very early age, you can see their uniqueness, their giftedness, their talents, and how they're naturally going to be pulled into areas, I think, as they grow older, where that giftedness is going to be a benefit to them. And so exposing them to opportunities or ideas that might be a a likely fit for them in those areas has been a big part of it. And then, you know, just talking through setbacks with them. I, I think one of the things that I've yeah, one of the areas maybe that my wife and I have disagreed a little bit. She could be a bit of a mama bear, and I love that about her. But any time that there's been, you know, a, a teacher who's been unfair to one of our children or a coach or a classmate or something of that nature, you know, there's the natural parental instinct to want to rush in and take care of them and protect them and go right. fight that battle for them. And and. I, I tried really hard to like appreciate those moments where our kids were really treated unfairly and to teach them how to sort of work through that internally, how to process mm-hmm. that, how to deal with that. Because the fact of the matter is when they leave our homes, when, when they move out for the last time, life's not going to be fair. There's going right. to be a boss. There's going to be a colleague. They're going to be stabbed in the back. There's going to be, there's going to be all kinds of situations where they're not treated fairly. And I want them to be equipped to know how to work through and navigate those things and not to expect life to be fair. And every time it's not fair for somebody to bail them out, I think that's an unrealistic expectation. And so I think that's been part of trying to help them discover how to be successful. Part of it is figuring out how to work through times when there's setbacks that aren't your fault. No, you're right. And it's funny. It's, you know, I've done the same thing with my boys kind of teaching them, especially in sports, they can get, I mean, sometimes in sports, they, they're things can, things can be brutal for them and, and how they're treated as far as, so it's one of those things where I said, I've always told my boys, always told my boys, you need to first talk to the coach and try to address the situation or the issue. And if that doesn't help or it doesn't get resolved, then you talk to me and then we will have a meeting together with the coach, the three of us and try to resolve it that way. But um, trying to trying to battle, trying to take on all their battles for them, you're just setting them up for failure because you're right. Life isn't fair, and when they get out of the get the home and are living on their own, they need to be able to face those challenges, and recognize those challenges and be ready for them. And obviously, we're going to be parents forever. They're going to come to us forever, right? Yeah. How did being raised primarily by a single mom impact your parenting? I mean. What kind of influence did she have on you that I think you that you would have, you know, kind of translated into your parenting style now? God, that's a great question. Uh, she was an unbelievably 
godly woman. She was very prayerful. I mean, when my father passed away, she she turned to the church. She chose not to date or get married. She wanted to put all her time and energy into raising the three of us. Uh, she went to Mass every single day. She literally went twice on Holy Days. She'd get up early and go to Mass, and then she'd come home and get us dressed for, like, Easter or something like that, or All Saints Day, and then she'd bring us, and she'd go a second time. Uh, so, and I could, like, some of my vivid memories are, you know, being up in the morning. My mother would be sitting in bed every morning, reading her prayer book, reading her devotionals, reading her Bibles, um, uh, praying the rosary. And so I know she, I know she prayed aggressively over each one of us children and over our lives. And so certainly that has carried into, I think, my parenting for my children. Outside of that, though, nobody gives you a handbook for parenting. And we certainly didn't have the internet and we didn't have, you know, podcasts and we didn't have other ways of getting information about good parenting other than maybe checking out a book at the library. And so um, I think there's a lot of things that she did right as far as providing the right kind of home and environment that was safe for us and that was loving and that was nurturing. And then there's other things that, you know, I I just decided, like, for example, if I got in trouble and she didn't know what to do and there wasn't a a father to fall back on, I can remember her chasing me around the kitchen with a wooden spoon wanting to swap me on the butt. And what she was, (laughs) right, what she was trying to teach me was discipline and respect and follow the rules and there's consequences. And I certainly wanted to teach that to my children as well. However, when I had, when we had our first time became a parent, I looked at a lot of those things and said, okay, here's what my mother did. And here was the outcome. And because of that, here's who I am. But I asked myself the question, is there a better way that I can teach that same principle? Is there another way that I can teach my children that there's consequences and that there's discipline and to respect people without chasing them around and beating them with the wooden spoon. <laughs> you know, right, right. Right. For example, I've never, I've never laid a hand on any one of our three kids. I've never spanked them once, nor has my wife. And so sometimes I say that people are like, oh, God, you must have like these entitled kids who do whatever they want. And it's just the opposite. I, I was always a, a firm disciplinarian. And at times I had what I would call like a hair trigger when it came to consequences and discipline. I just didn't need to strike my kids to get their attention. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think um, in our faith, we talk about, you know, the the fear of God. And there's, there should be a healthy sense of a healthy, like double underscore bold, healthy sense of fear of your father. Should be. Right. At the same time, you should know he's loving and nurturing. Right. So I would quickly put my kids in timeout before I started to get frustrated. Like if I mm-hmm. start to notice something's tweaking me a little bit, I don't wait till I'm frustrated or upset or overwhelmed or pissed. Like immediately I'm putting them in timeout to get their attention. And then one of the things that we consistently did, though, is every single time before we let them out of timeout, we'd always have them sit on the stairs. We didn't make them, like, sit in the corner with their nose in the corner. But every time I took them off the stairs, I'd turn to them. I'd say, hey, Alex, for example. He's like, oh, so I'd say, Alex, I just want you to know that nothing in the world that you could ever, ever, ever do would cause mom or dad to stop loving you. Literally, there's no, you could become a serial killer. I'm still going to love you. You're my son. However... I don't like that behavior at all. And that behavior is what we won't accept or tolerate anymore. I love you as a son and as a child, but I don't like that behavior at all. And you need to learn to stop doing that. And so I always tried to separate the behavior from who they were as an individual. And, um, but I was, I, I was strict. I just didn't feel the need to. Start. And so each one of the things that I sort of learned from my mother, 
I was just asked, is there a better way to teach that? Or is the way that she sort of taught me whatever that principle, is that the right way for me too? And some things we do exactly the same and other things, you know, we've changed fairly dramatically. And uh, we've gotten a lot longer shelf life on our wooden spoons as a result of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you're right. It, we Listen, we as dads, I mean, really the only uh, influence we have or our <clears throat> knowledge we have from being a, to, to being a dad is obviously from our own father or from the influences around us, whether it was an uncle or, you know, a, a caretaker or like you had in your, your, your situation, uh, you know, the big brother program. So we just have those kind of scenarios to, to live off of or to go off of. And um, it can be hard at times um, because not what, how they did things in the past wasn't always the right way. And things change right. too. As as, right. as economy goes by or as the environment goes by or, you know, technology even makes, makes us change as parents. Um, so many things help, uh, affect us and uh, we're going to mess up. We just yeah. have to acknowledge that. And one of the things that I do with my boy, the same thing. We, we always had the timeout situation. But when, when we tried to talk to our children uh, to discuss the behavior that we didn't like, we always made sure we were at eye level. We never wanted to yeah. stand up over them and talk to them about their behavior. We wanted to make sure we were at eye level. Um, so that way they knew that we were on the same, you know, we were on the same level. I was not necessarily the authority, but I was kind of setting the rules. Yeah. So eye level is certainly important. I, I try to teach my dad that as, as well. Yeah. That, that's always came naturally to me because I'm sort of challenging the height department. So <laughs> even when they were little, I could stand up and be eye contact them. <laughs> <laughs> now they stand over me and look down on me, which is sort of right. intimidating. I wish they'd learn what I had tried to teach them, right? <laughs> yeah, both my boys stand over me, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though, Brian, you, you talk about that. One of the things that I have done, because things have changed and technology is available and there's books and there's podcasts like yours, there's, there's great resources out there. And so for me, a couple of things that I've done, like one is – I'll give you an example. Um, we've got some really good friends of ours that are with the LDL, the LDS Church, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when we've ran into really difficult parenting questions that we're, we're just sort of new and navigating for the first time, I've oftentimes reached out to them. And it's almost like I've got a number of them who have children that are older. It's almost like they have a playbook for mm-hmm. how do you handle the teenage years or how do you handle dating or how do you handle this or that. And I just found that their approach oftentimes, I don't have to agree with everything. So I was always curious about their perspective on things. You know, too often times I felt like if I turned to like my, my, a lot of my friends that were raising their kids or other parents at the school or whatever the case might be, all too often I was like, well, you know, we did it when we were young and it didn't kill us or it's part of being a teenager. You know what? Yeah, all the other kids are doing it. And it's just like, that didn't just really jive with sort of the standards that Michelle and I wanted to set. And so, mm-hmm. you know, getting feedback from other people who I thought raised really normal kids. They weren't like weird, nerdy, goofy kids that nobody liked. They raised really successful, normal kids that had healthy self-esteem and self-confidence. And yet they raised them with higher standards and they, they, they were the, they shared the kind of values, even as teenagers and young adults that we would want them to. And, and certainly I've turned to, the internet and books and podcasts and so forth to really try and explore ideas. I remember the first time that, 
we were supposed to have, you know, the talk uh, mm-hmm. with her oldest son, Alex. Like, I, I can't tell you how many different articles that I researched and read about it. And, and what I came to realize was, like, the talk, whether it's about sex or alcohol or drugs or whatever it might be, it, it, it isn't a talk. It's a series of ongoing conversations that take place weekly and monthly for years. And that I realized that the more awkward I felt and uncomfortable I felt about talking to my children about this stuff, the more awkward and uncomfortable they were going to feel. And the more that I made it just a regular, normal part of our conversation, like talking about a ball game, for example, the more comfortable that they were naturally going to feel talking about, the more often we talked about it, the less of a big deal. Sometimes they didn't feel like talking about any of those things. And then other times we'd be talking about it and they'd really seem to open up more about it. And um, sometimes like I just joke about it, like, uh, you know, like, Oh God, yeah. How was the party? Great. You know, uh, who had the weed? You know what I mean? Like joke, but I I just want to let them know, like I'm aware of what's going on. We're talking about it. And um, <laughs> like one of the things yeah. that we tried to tell our kids early is like, look, hey, when it comes to sex and when it comes to drinking, mom and I are the experts. Like we've been doing it for decades <laughs> and all of your little friends that are going to try and tell you what's going on, they've only been doing it for like a few months. So we know a lot more than them, right? <laughs> so if you want to know the real deal, we're this first, right? But sometimes playful and sometimes really serious. But, I, you know, I think that was one of the things that my mom prayed a lot about for us and we knew what her expectations were. She just didn't know how to talk to us about it. Mm. And she wasn't comfortable talking to us about it. And so she sort of hoped that through prayer and maybe other people talking about us, knowing what was important, that that would be good enough. And, and um, you know, those are just those are such important conversations that, that you have to sort of set those standards with your kids. And I just I, you know, I remember when our oldest turned 13 and people go, oh, wait, here you go. Teenage right. years. You know, and I was just like. Michelle and I sat down, I'm like, I refuse to believe that just because they're teenagers, like that this has to be some sort of weird, awkward, defiant, disrespectful, crazy time in their lives or in our relationship with our children. Like, I just refuse to accept that. I'm not going to believe it. And we're going to find a way where it's not that way for us. And, and quite frankly, I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. They're 19, 18, and 14, but we haven't had any stuff going on. We're like, we haven't had any crazy stuff going on. There's, It's been a... a a pretty even smooth road. We've been unbelievably fortunate in that regard. And, and um, I think we've continued to have a great dialogue with our kids throughout it. And they've, they've allowed us to, to let us speak into their lives and help them through conversations and situations and navigate things. And, and, and I'm grateful for that. One of the things that I always told my kids, I I use the, the sort of the metaphor of a dog on a leash. I'm like, I want you to have a longer leash than you could ever imagine. Right. Like I, I, you can't even imagine how much freedom and independence I want you to have. You can't right. imagine, you can't wrap your head around. You see that you want to be able to do this. I'm looking like well beyond that, but for you to do that, that's the, the length of the leash is determined on how much we can trust you. And when you violate our trust, when you lie or when you mislead us or allow us to be misled, we have to shorten the leash and we have to micromanage you because that's violated. And I'm like, the last thing I want to do is micromanage. You. I just don't, I, it's just not fun. I don't want to do that at all. So whatever it is that you do, whatever bad choice or bad behavior that you, and we're all human, we're going to make mistakes. There is something worse that you can do. You can lie about it or hide it. And that's the far worse offense than whatever you can possibly do. 
I would rather know the truth and like be disappointed in you and vehemently disagree than really be lied to or misled in any way. And and the other thing I tried to do in regards to that, kids are going to screw up. They're going to make mistakes. I, I'm 55 years old. I make, I make mistakes, ones that I'm not proud of, you know. And so when my kids have made a mistake and I've found out about it or they've let me know, I've really tried hard to just bite my tongue and be compassionate and graceful and merciful in the moment. Because mm. I think if they're coming to you and they know that they've screwed up and they're really afraid of what you're going to say, like, I think my kids are at a point where, like, how much they're disappointed in their own actions and how much they're fear bringing up is causing so much pain and consequence and correction already. Like right. Me beating them up verbally or losing my temper isn't going to make them feel any worse about it. You can tell when they genuinely feel bad about their choices or the behavior, when mm-hmm. they genuinely like are seeking like reconciliation, they're seeking forgiveness. They're, they, they know that they've done something wrong. And it's mm-hmm. not to say that there won't be consequences later, but in the moment, what I always want them to think is when something really bad happens, I can go to dad and he's not going to freak out. I don't want them to be in a situation where something really bad is happening and thinking, oh, God, the last person I can go to is dad because he's going to lose his mind. Right. Because I, I want to be that resource for them at the most difficult times. And, and so it's not always easy to do, but it's something that I've worked really, really hard. I, I remember the first time. Like Alex, my oldest, you know, gotten a little bit of a fender bender. It was nothing serious at all, but oh my God, he was scared to death to call me. His voice was trembling. And I just remember going, you know what? I get it. It's okay. We've all done it. I wish it wouldn't have happened, but we'll work through it. It's fixable. And, and I think he was like shocked at my response. That's sort of what we tried to do. Yeah. And I, I think what's important though, you bring up such great point. And I think that parents need to understand, particularly dads, because dads have a, we kind of have this, this rough way about us where we can, we can lose our tempers pretty quickly. Um, yeah. But it's so important that dads start to develop that commu- that level of communication with their children at such a young age and not try to, even when they're one or two, you know, the, even the, you know, the re, you know, you heard the whole thing, don't, don't touch a hot stove kind of deal. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Dads freak out, you know, and it's, I think those kind of conversations need to happen when they're young. So that way, when they are hitting those teenage years and you do have to, you do have to have those talks with your kids, they're at already, their mind is already at that comfort level that, yeah, I can trust this guy. And I, I know that he has my back. And, and it, so those kind of conversations, my whole point is those conversations need to happen when, when they're younger and as they grow up and more and more that bond that you guys have, it'll carry them through their adult life. I mean, just for me in particular with Blake, 22 years old, I can still have conversations with him. And it's just because I had those conversations, other conversations with him when he was such a young child. And so he knew he could trust me. And, but you're right. You can't, you can't lose it. You can't get frustrated in the moment. You have to um, kind of take a step back and let them know that you understand. And I think the other part of that, Brian is you're right. I think the other part of that is when you do lose it, when you lose your temper, when you lose your cool, or you overreact, or you raise your voice, you know, and you start getting a little bit crazy, or or your consequences are too harsh, like, you've got to own it. you got to say, hey, you mm-hmm. know what, I overstepped, I shouldn't have done that. And, and you've got to apologize to them and own it, because you've got to set the standard of and model for them the behavior that you're trying to teach them. And just because we're in a position of 
leadership in the home that, you know, we're in a superior position, if you will, uh, and they're subordinate to us in a way that that doesn't mean we're beyond reproach or beyond accountability. We've got to model the behavior that we're expecting of them. And exactly it's, always right. e- it's not always easy to do. Oh, you're exactly right, though. You're exactly yeah. right. Now, I know you talked a, briefly a little bit about it uh, through our conversation, um, but what what resources ha- resources have you used in parenting that might be helpful for parents to use today? Um, I've been a I've been a voracious reader since I was young. So books, you know, from when we when Michelle was pregnant with our oldest Alice. I mean, at that point, we're I'm buying books about parenting, and the the Baby Wise series was like eye opening for us when we were in that stage of infants and babies. And um, Dr. Dobson, I know, had written a you know a book about raise, uh, raising up boys that was fantastic when. You know, both Alice and Jack were toddlers and sort of going into that elementary stage. Um, certainly podcasts like yours. I've, I've Googled lots of different, you know, for us, uh, my faith is really important. So I, I've Googled a lot of different uh, Christian parenting websites and resources of that nature. And with, with in these areas where I'm not 100% certain what I believe is right, I'm looking for ideas and resources and tools that just sort of match my value system and mm-hmm. that makes and that makes sense to me and then like i said other parents that that i really res- that, who have older kids than mine and i really admire the way they turn out i'll be honest with you I, I, all the work that we do that all the all the time and preparation and conversations all the effort that goes into parenting i think in my mind all it does is increase your odds, your chances of raising good kids. It's no guarantee. I, I know parents that have done an unbelievable job with their kids, and they still have a kid that goes completely off the rails, becomes a prodigal son, gets mixed up in all kinds of you know bad behavior, bad choices. And I know other parents that, quite frankly, I think are pretty bad parents, and right. they raise terrific kids. So it's certainly no guarantee, but I just think that when, we, when we're diligent about it, that we that we increase our odds. The other thing I've tried to do over the years, and sometimes I've done better than others, just sort of have, you know, daddy dates where my daughter and I will have a time scheduled and we'll go to Starbucks and sit down and have a coffee drink and talk and, and we'll go shopping and do things that are important to her. And I try to do the same with each, each one of the boys as well. And sort of that making sure that I'm mindful to spend sort of enough one-on-one time mm-hmm. with each one of them so that there's a relationship that we have outside of the group, outside of the family. There's a one-on-one relationship that we have as well. And, you know, and then that's continued as they get older and, you know, your kids move away via text and FaceTime and phone calls and so forth. But that we're connecting one-on-one like that is certainly important. Very cool. Those are great suggestions, great tips. If my listeners wanted to look you up, learn a little bit more about you, where's the best place for them to do that? That's a great, you know, I probably got to get better at having people. I'm not, I don't hide, <laughs> but I probably don't do a good job of putting myself out there. Um, my last name is Schleiman, S-C-H-L-O-E-M-A-N. And I think uh, on Instagram, I think I'm probably at Schleiman, I think, or at Christopher Schleiman. I think it's my full name, Christopher Schleiman. Uh, on Instagram, Twitter, I think it's at Schleiman. I think Facebook, it's Christopher Schleiman. And yeah, I'll put all the uh, I'll put all your social media tags on there. Um, but uh, well, cool. Look, obviously we've known each other for a very very long time. Um, I'm we're just getting uh, started, brother. Right. I'm certainly uh, glad that you took the time to come on the show and share your yes. perspectives on parenting. Certainly been a huge pleasure and, and 
I, I just really appreciate you doing it. It's, it's, it's been an honor to be asked and to be invited. And uh, I really appreciate what you're doing out there for so many dads, the, the value that you're creating, the ideas that you're putting out there. And sometimes, sometimes you pick up good ideas from a, you know, a podcast like this. And sometimes you hear a guy come on and go, yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to do what he's doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> like right. it's that exchange of ideas that I think opens up our minds to what's possible in a different approach and a different perspective. And I know it's forums like this that have been just a big, big influence on me over the years. And I'm grateful that you're for the work that you're doing. So keep up the good work. Super proud of you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Another exciting episode complete. My guest today certainly represents the data community very well. Continue to stay tuned because my shows with amazing guests comes out every week. You don't want to miss out. Please help the show by subscribing and leaving a rating. I would love your feedback. If you know anyone this show could help, please share it with them. I don't want anyone missing out on what it takes to be a great parent. If you have comments or questions, please let me know. You can message me on my Instagram page at Data Podcast. I read all your comments and respond to them all. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. This is Data. Up.